On this week's On the Media, while engaged media consumers fret over who said what on Twitter or the latest Fox hosts outrages, is anyone paying close attention to the radio waves? I believe that this bottleneck is intentional to try to create an argument for mass immigration. We're going to draw the connections between the environmentalist lobby, the Greta Thunbergs of the world, the AOCs, and... COVID. Nothing Americans can do would help this country as much as taking their kids out of the schools of America. We disagree vehemently with the lie of transgenderism and the lie that marriage can be redefined. You have to listen to it live in order to capture what's being said. And so it just operates out of sight. Nobody pays any attention and it has so much power. This week we're listening to talk radio. It's all coming up after this. WNYC Studios is supported by Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Are you one of our million-something listeners a week who catch OTM on the radio? Do you listen to any other stations on the dial other than public radio? Because a lot of people are listening to the radio, and they're tuning in in huge numbers. And the content is almost all conservative. The vast majority at this point of gender confusion is being driven by societal mania. Racial profiling is good for your health. It could save your life. I know a lot of people, oh my God, this is racist. No, no, it's not. No, it's not. Drill, build the Keystone Pipeline, deport illegals, build the wall. I don't want to hear about the EPA or the Department of Energy. I don't want to hear about Biden's overreach. Defy the federal government. While engaged media consumers may fret over who said what on Twitter or video clips of the latest Fox hosts' outrages, is anyone paying close attention to the radio waves? You have to listen to it live in order to capture what's being said. And that gives a lot more freedom to people who are on radio to say things that aren't true. Nicole Hemmer is the author of Messengers of the Right, Conservative Media and the Transformation of American Politics. So not only is it largely unseen and understudied, but it's not taken seriously, even though it has very serious consequences for culture and politics in the United States. And so it just operates out of sight. Nobody pays any attention and it has so much power. It can move the political needle across the country. And that's why On the Media decided to investigate the most powerful Christian media company you probably never heard of and how the landscape of talk radio came to be so politically one-sided. Our guide on this expedition is reporter Katie Thornton. Here's Katie. A few weeks after the 2020 election, radio host Eric Metaxas had one of his frequent guests back on the air. Colonel Doug Mastriano. This man is an American hero. 
Doug Mastriano, freshman Pennsylvania state senator and recently defeated 2022 Republican nominee for governor, was at the vanguard promoting allegations of widespread fraud right after the 2020 election. And so was conservative Christian talk show host Eric Metaxas. So this was familiar fare to his listeners. What happens if these people don't join you in this? You could kiss fair and free elections goodbye. Mastriano had a plan to get the state's General Assembly to intervene in the election results. It was a legal long shot, or more accurately, an impossibility. Even the plan's creator, Trump lawyer John Eastman, said it wouldn't hold up in court. But Metaxas and Mastriano begged listeners to get their senators on board. I just want to say to my audience, if you live in Pennsylvania and you don't do this, when things go to hell, which they will... Um, I want you to know you're responsible. But right before this interview with Mastriano, something unexpected happened. Something that Eric Metaxas called divine intervention. Mastriano got a call. Hey, sir, I'm here with uh, Eric Metaxas. He wants to know if you want any message to go out on his show today. From lame duck president Donald Trump, seeing how the attempt to change the Pennsylvania election results was going. And Trump was happy to get on speakerphone with Metaxas. Can you hear him, uh, Eric? Yes, I can hear the president. Mr. President, I want to know, what can I do? Fantastic. Your, your, your whole show and your whole deal is great. So just keep it up. We're making a lot of progress, actually. With a cleanly parted shock of salt and pepper hair, sports coats over button-down shirts, and bookish round glasses, Metaxas's style suggests more Manhattan dandy than would-be crusader. But when it came to defending Trump's seat against a supposedly stolen election, Metaxas was ready for battle. I'd be, I'd be, I'd be happy to die in this fight. This is a fight for everything. God is with us. Thank you, Mr. President. God bless you. Yep. They stole an election, but we're not going to, we're just not going to happen. No, we're not. A fight for everything, with God on our side. A fight worth dying for. It's a sentiment that many on the right became convinced of, and that some took to the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, 2021. Spoiler alert. Metaxas did not die in this fight, but he fired off many of the lies that fueled the attack. Metaxas is not a fire-breathing talk show host on some fringe local radio station. His show is beamed from the heart of New York City, out of a corner office radio studio in the Empire State Building, to cities and towns across the United States. One estimate puts his audience at 8 million listeners each week. I've worked and volunteered in radio since I was a teenager, doing everything from hosting music shows to legal and operational support to selling ads. I love radio. In an era so driven by distant virtual connection, it's a medium that's so intimate and immediate and so inherently local, delivering information that's relevant to my community, at least in theory. But flip around through the AM and FM dial, and you notice that radio writ large is pretty homogenous. And that's especially true on talk radio, 
where one political and religious perspective reigns. I wanted to know how we got to this divided dial, how rhetoric like Metaxas's, far-right conspiracies and incitements to violence, has found a comfortable home on the public airwaves, and how many talkers who have been deplatformed on social media still have a haven on the radio dial. As it turns out, radio is still really influential and a crucial component of the American far-right movement. And getting here didn't happen by accident. But let me finish telling you about Eric Metaxas. Welcome, Eric Metaxas. To a lot of people who knew him a decade ago, his current role as spokesperson for election fraud conspiracies and an evangelist for a politicized God who would support going to battle for Donald Trump came as a surprise. That is idolatry. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you don't know what idolatry is, you're probably not saved. Ten years ago, Metaxas was known as an up-and-coming evangelical public intellectual type. He wrote a book about Martin Luther and one about German anti-Nazi pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He hosted a Manhattan lecture series called Socrates in the City, where he interviewed people like Malcolm Gladwell about faith and public life. Before all this, he was a writer on Veggie Tales. Have we got a show for you. The evangelical kids show featuring talking vegetables and life lessons. We know that God's word is for everyone. And now that our song is done, we'll take a hey, that's cool. Metaxas was even a featured speaker at President Barack Obama's prayer breakfast in 2012. I'm the son of European immigrants who met in an English class in New York City My mom is German, hence my deep love for Siegfried and Roy. Two years later, he came out with one of the Wall Street Journal's most engaged with articles ever, called Science Increasingly Makes the Case for God. And when businessman and reality TV star Donald Trump entered the presidential race halfway through 2015, Metaxas poked fun at Trump's plea for Christian votes. He wrote satirical tweets mocking Trump's lack of understanding of Christianity, calling it hashtag Trump Bible. Things like, Jesus went out into the desert, but he should have invested in hotels there. I mean, I'm killing it in Vegas. Trump Bible was featured twice in The New Yorker. But as the 2016 election season bore on, Metaxas changed his tune. And it all started not long after he was recruited to have a radio show by this guy. How about this? Hey, look, I'm a program director. What do I know about microphones? This is Phil Boyce, a talk radio programming veteran, speaking here in 2018 to a group of industry professionals. So we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on in talk radio and uh, how the news talk format continues to make a difference in America. Notice I resisted the urge to say, make America great again. But I did come up with kind of a cool, sexy, secondary title, how to take advantage of the biggest boon to talk radio to come along since Monica Lewinsky wore a blue dress. Boyce was talking about, you guessed it, Donald Trump. We call him the gift that keeps on giving. This guy right here is a game changer for our format, and you can take advantage of this every single day. Boyce spent 14 years programming WABC, one of the most listened-to talk radio stations in the country. He discovered Sean Hannity and put him on the air. I'm sitting there in November of 2016 thinking it's all over for me. I really thought Hillary was going to win. How many of you thought Hillary was going to win? Come on, be honest. Okay, and if she had, I was fearful it was going to be damaging to our format. She might try to hurt talk radio, knowing her. 
Well, guess what? 2017 was a great year because of Donald Trump winning that election. Salem Radio Network is part of the larger Salem Media Group, and Salem just may be the most influential media entity you've never heard of. Named after a biblical title for Jerusalem, Salem is the country's largest conservative Christian multimedia company. Phil Boyce has overseen all national talk programming there since 2015. From my home in Minneapolis, I can tune into four different Salem stations. Philadelphians and New Yorkers, you have two apiece. Portland, Oregon has six. Little Rock, Sacramento, Atlanta, four each. Five in Dallas. And that's only a fraction of Salem's stations. They have conservative talk stations. On Philadelphia's AM 990, the answer. Atlanta's home for conservative talk. Right here on 1280, The Patriot. They have Christian talk stations. AM 980, The Mission, the Twin Cities Christian Voice. KDAR 98.3 FM, The Word. You are on the men's show. And Christian music stations. 104.7, The Fish. In addition to the stations they own, Salem syndicates their talk shows on over 3,000 other stations. In some cases, they give their shows away in exchange for nothing other than advertising time. So Salem hosts can be heard on stations across the country. One of the first things Phil Boyce did in his new role at Salem was to bring in up-and-coming evangelical celebrity Eric Metaxas. Metaxas, who'd never worked as a radio host before, was eager. But not long after Boyce hired him, there was a shakeup on the company's airwaves. Conservative commentator Alicia Krauss was the first to go. She co-hosted the morning show on Salem's Los Angeles station with Ben Shapiro, now one of the country's most popular conservative podcasters. Krauss, then an anti-Trump conservative, said staff pressured her to cover Trump more favorably during the 2016 election. She didn't, and she said she felt she was fired because of it. The company said it was because she didn't have great chemistry with one of her co-hosts, who was a very rare liberal voice on the station, but who was also eventually let go. Back in 2016, their other co-host, Ben Shapiro, didn't support Trump either. When he sent Phil Boyce an email asking how to cover the candidate, Boyce responded with a message saying Salem didn't have an official position, but that the CEO of the company had argued that beating Hillary would mean supporting Trump. Boyce wrote, I suggest that you become a trial lawyer. You suspect your client is guilty, but you are paid to get him off. Shapiro left of his own accord, and the weeding out continued into 2018. Here's Phil Boyce at that conference again. I've got a host right now. I'm coaching him out of bad habits. He understood that Trump is good for our audience, but there's some days he just can't bring himself to say good stuff. Former Republican congressman and Salem host Joe Walsh was fickle on Trump. And I said, what are you doing? Your listeners rely on us. We are the antidote to the mainstream media. If you align yourself with them, you'll eventually lose. Salem pulled the plug on Walsh's show shortly after, though they said it wasn't because of his stance on Trump. That same year, host Michael Medved, also an anti-Trump conservative and who had been with Salem for more than 20 years, was let go too. 
Salem said it wasn't because of his politics, but a lot of company staff who were fired around this time went on the record saying there was a purge of anti-Trumpers at Salem. Eric Metaxas, though, was safe. Despite his earlier wavering, by 2016, he was committed to the Salem company line, even writing an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal, arguing that Christians needed to throw their support behind Donald Trump. If you care about America, you, you, sometimes you have to hold your nose and vote for the person who's going to do the least damage or who's going to maybe pull you back from the brink. I'm genuinely convinced that that is, uh, means voting for Trump. It doesn't mean that I think... Metaxas was an early recruit to Voice's new national radio team, but there were more to come. After the break, we meet the lineup. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know wherever you get your podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Before the break, we learned that Salem CEO Phil Boyce had cleaned house and was replacing old hosts with new ones. Now let's meet the lineup. The number is 83333-GORKA, but don't call us on a cell phone that's connected to one of the big cell phone providers because they are utterly woke and they hate you. They have Sebastian Gorka, host since 2019. He was an anti-terrorism advisor to President Trump but failed to get the necessary clearance to actually work on national security issues. He's been shown to have ties to a Hungarian far-right neo-Nazi group that's on a U.S. Department of State watch list. And there's Charlie Kirk. Let's talk about this war on white people. That's a thought crime, Douglas. Yeah. You're not allowed to say oh, that. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're obviously welcome to say it here. We agree. Kirk runs the ultra-conservative, anti-higher ed youth organization Turning Point USA, Voice brought him on in mid-2020. Along with long-standing Salem hosts Dennis Prager, Hugh Hewitt, and Mike Gallagher, these new voices make up the core of Salem's national talent. A sort of B-list of right-wing celebrities who don't get reported on the same way your Alex Joneses or your Tucker Carlsons do. And by the time the 2020 election season came around, listeners across the country heard a unified message from Donald Trump and Salem talkers alike. This is going to be a fraud like you've never seen. All run by Democrats. It's President Trump. It's a rigged election. If we lose, if the president loses, they will come for us all. They will come for your children. They will come for your schools. They will come in every fashion. And they won't stop. And on January 4th, 2021, Salem host Charlie Kirk used his radio show to lay out a roadmap to a second Trump term. Believe it or not, there is a almost guaranteed way that Donald Trump serves four more years. Mike Pence says, based on the power and the authority granted to me as president of the United States Senate and my oath to the Constitution of the United States, I refuse to certify at this very moment the election results of Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. This is not true, but it was an idea that was making the rounds in right-wing circles. Two days later, that's exactly what the crowds on the steps of the Capitol were calling for, complete with a hangman's noose 
and chance to string up the vice president. As protesters poured into the rotunda, Salem host Sebastian Gorka celebrated live on the air. As we saw a protester just moments ago on television say to the shock and the chagrin of Fox News, that's our house. It's hard to remember now, but right after January 6th, there was a brief moment of almost unity. Even many in the broader right-wing media ecosystem, like hosts on Fox News, said that maybe the falsehoods about the election had gone too far. I want to be clear. The actions at the United States Capitol three days ago were deplorable, reprehensible, outright criminal. And I don't care whether those who did it think the election was stolen. Though no one from the company confirmed it, there were reports that Cumulus, one of the biggest radio chains in the country, with tons of conservative talkers, sent a memo to their hosts. It said, the election is over. If you suggest otherwise, you can expect to be fired. At Salem, there was no January 6th memo. The lies about the stolen election continued. And soon, the rest of the right-wing media ecosystem caught up with Salem followed closely by a large contingent of the Republican Party. In the midterms last fall, well over half of all Americans had a 2020 election denier on their ballot. At least 170 of those candidates were elected to state and national offices. Some of those winners will be in charge of future elections. A favorite piece of evidence of election deniers was brought to the public by Salem Media. We must now face the chilling reality. The Democrats conceived the heist. They funded it. They organized it. Then they carried it out. In May of last year, Salem released a film hosted by far-right activist Dinesh D'Souza. They rigged and stole the 2020 presidential election. We cannot be okay with this. We cannot simply move on. The film, 2,000 Mules, claims to prove election fraud in 2020. The movie is rife with shortcomings and outright falsehoods. Regardless, the film was a hit. Trump himself held an early screening at Mar-a-Lago, where the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene, Rudy Giuliani, and Kenosha, Wisconsin shooter Kyle Rittenhouse all came to watch. 2,000 Mules has a 100% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. According to Salem, the film grossed $10 million in under two weeks. In 2021, Salem launched their own podcast network, and the Dinesh D'Souza podcast was their debut feature. They've added over a dozen daily conservative podcasts since then, often featuring young hosts who vie for a new generation of listeners. Every Salem radio host can also be found as talking heads on the company's new 24-7 internet television station. Salem News Channel, which they launched a couple years ago. Salem also has their own movie streaming service and production house, a rapidly growing conservative Christian influencer network, a series of Christian websites like Christianity.com and GodTube, and a long-running conservative publishing house called Regnery. They even run a service that sells sermons to pastors. And for over a decade, they've been quietly purchasing some of the biggest conservative news sites. Town Hall, Hot Air, and Red State. But for all of Salem's varied media strategies, broadcast radio is still central to their operations. According to Nielsen, broadcast radio has a higher reach than television. 
Pew Research says it's nearly neck and neck with social media for how Americans get their news. Surveys repeatedly show that Americans trust radio over any other medium. Now that I've brought you up to speed on where Salem is today, let's go back to where they started. Our story begins, fittingly, in a small southern Virginia town called Ararat, named after the final destination of Noah's Ark. Here, in 1935, against the backdrop of the Blue Ridge Mountains, a boy named Stuart Epperson was born into a family of tobacco farmers. They didn't have electricity in their farmhouse. No one in the area did back then. But the Epperson household was connected in a different way. When Stuart was a kid, his older brother Ralph had fallen in love with the new medium of radio. How do you do, everybody? And convinced his parents to get a mail-order Montgomery Ward radio set. Your Grand Ole Opry. Without power, he set up a windmill on top of the house to recharge the device's battery. The blades of the mill would cause the house to shudder on windy days. But the rudimentary generator worked. Got my Sunday shoes on, got my hair slicked down. Happy a big time tonight. The Eppersons invited neighbors and passersby in to listen along. And when their house got too full, they would open the windows so everyone out there could hear too. Ralph's radio set was the neighborhood's line to the outside. Friends, come with us again to the Grand Ole Opry house and join in another half hour of fun music and song. But young Stewart's brother Ralph didn't just want to listen to the radio. In a high school correspondence course, he learned, via mailed letters from instructors, to build radios. And eventually, Stuart Epperson watched his brother use his passion to serve his country, and then his community. Adam Piori is a reporter who's written several lengthy articles about Salem Media over the years. During World War II, his older brother worked for the Navy developing radar. And when he got home, he built a radio station on the second floor of their farmhouse. Just two years after getting hooked up to the grid, the Epperson's house was transformed into an electrical wonderland of tubes, gadgets, and microphones. Aspiring singers and musicians flocked to the home with banjos and fiddles, filling the Epperson's living room and the local airwaves with what they called hillbillery. Johnson had an old gravy with the name of Simon Slick. He'd bought his eyes in the back stairs and how that food would kick. The family would take the mic. Okay, thanks a lot. That was... Mother, who is also known as Mrs. H.A. Epson. Yes, sir, we appreciate that expression. And preachers were invited to sermonize to unseen congregants within the station's reach. It was the essence of a community radio station. Homegrown and accessible, beloved, a little haphazard. And it must have left an impression on Stuart Epperson, because he went on to study broadcasting at the evangelical Bob Jones University in South Carolina. He married his classmate, Nancy Atzinger, and soon started a radio business with his brother-in-law and fellow Bob Jones alum, Edward Atzinger. In 1973, they started a small FM radio station. Anne Nelson is an author and professor at Columbia University. She wrote about Salem in her book Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. These brothers-in-law acquired a radio station in Bakersfield, California, it was almost like a, a patch of the South that was detached and set down north of Los Angeles. Bakersfield had been a sort of southern outpost since the days of the Dust Bowl, when farm workers from Oklahoma and other southern states fled there. But Epperson and Atzinger didn't just want to reach other southern transplants. They had a vision. 
to bring the message of their evangelical faith to new audiences. Soon, they bought a second station, KDAR in Oxnard, California, just outside Los Angeles. They realized that Christians wanted a platform where they could tune in and listen to people talk about biblical truth and their beliefs. And it's there that they began developing the formula that they would later replicate so successfully. At the time, a lot of Christian radio stations were small, not-for-profit, educational projects with non-commercial broadcast licenses. That meant they couldn't take money in exchange for running specific programming. But Epperson and Atzinger did something different. They got commercial licenses, meaning they could sell airtime. And they found they could charge these preachers a fairly substantial fee for carrying their programs. For Epperson and Atzinger, it was a win-win. They gave a platform to preachers, and with some money coming in, they were able to buy more radio stations and turn them into pulpits. From the beginning, they really emphasized what they called biblical values. Love your enemies, Matthew 5.44. Pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father who's in heaven. And this was promoting these very conservative social values, anti-LGBT. See, this is why homosexuality spreads. This is why it's not a constant from society to society. It varies. Favoring Christianity over other religions. The idea of a Christian marrying a non-Christian is totally in disobedience to Scripture. But for many who grew up with these radio broadcasts, they were more than just socially conservative messages. My father, he was a contractor, so he was in the truck all day and had his radio locked into Christian radio. This is John Fia. Today, he's a professor of history at Messiah Christian University in Pennsylvania. But growing up, John was just another kid whose family converted to evangelicalism and who heard a lot of Christian radio. Someone would look at this as kind of crazy, right? Like, who does this? Who cranks, you know, John MacArthur at maximum volume in the middle of a construction site or whatever. MacArthur is a minister who started on Salem's Oxnard station in 1977. But the idea here is if you're playing it on 11, you know, with the doors open in the truck, people are hearing it. And that was a way of living out your faith, right? One of the key components of evangelical Christianity is evangelism, right? Sharing one's faith. Fia also remembers hearing a show called Focus on the Family with James Dobson. Some homosexuality begins by roommates. Dobson was a big name in evangelical radio, still is. He's known for his homophobic rhetoric and for preaching corporal punishment and that a wife's place is in the home. But in the Fia household, the broadcast communicated another message. My father didn't need James Dobson to tell him how to be an authoritarian figure in the family or that people must submit to my father, you know, to his will in the family. He was doing it well before he became an evangelical Christian. So when James Dobson came along and said, hey, yeah, you have authority, right? People must submit to you, but you have to be a person of God that people want to submit to. You need to be a good husband. You need to be a good father. You need to show love. That changed my father's life. Salem's co-founders were out to save souls. So the more people they could reach, the better. Their big breakthrough was when they acquired KKLA, which was a thousand times more powerful than the one in Oxnard.
And once they had this blue chip Los Angeles area station as collateral, they could get a lot bigger loans. From 86 to 1990, they moved into Chicago. They bought two stations in Portland, one in San Diego. They got a strong signal in New York City. In a handful of years, Salem more than doubled their stations. And they started producing their own religious shows, too. This way, they could use their own programs to fill the airtime that they didn't sell to preachers, rather than paying a whole cast of local hosts in every city. You know, economies of scale and all that. They would tape shows at KKLA and they'd beam them out to affiliates, offering the company a big advantage over single operators. And to drive home just how much this business model worked for them, let me tell you about that big New York City station they bought. WMCA, home of the good guys. Years after Salem took over WMCA, they still didn't have enough listeners to rank among the city's top 24 stations. That's a key metric for advertisers, and most commercial stations live and die on advertising dollars. But with money coming in from paying ministries and their homemade shows filling some gaps, Salem had built a media network that wasn't all that dependent on a large audience and advertisers. With this model, they could broadcast their socially conservative religious programming to a niche audience and still get bigger, still grow their platform, still buy more stations. But we need to back up a little bit because all of this growth didn't happen in a vacuum. So let me tell you another story about a political movement that was gathering steam in America and how it came to be intertwined with Salem. That's coming up after the break. This is On the Media. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. We've heard how Salem went from a single station to a growing network. Now let's dive into a nascent political movement that was also gathering momentum. Here's Katie. In the early 1970s, in Washington, D.C., a young Republican activist named Paul Weyrich was at his wit's end. He was a transplant from Wisconsin and only 30 years old. But for the previous decade, he'd been trying and, by his later account, quote, utterly failing, to get conservative Christians to vote and to get Republicans to welcome them into the party. I remember calling the Republican Party chairman in 1962 when the ruling came down against prayer in the schools. This is why Rick reflecting on his life's work in a 2005 interview with C-SPAN. And I said, the party ought to come out really against that. And he said, oh, why would we want to mix up the party in, in that kind of an issue? And I said, well, because it's wrong. Weyrich believed that evangelicals were an untapped voting block for the right. But try as he might, he could not find an issue that got evangelicals out from the pews and to the polls. Not the ban on prayer in public school or the women's rights movement, not the counterculture of the 1960s or pornography, not even abortion. Good evening. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. The majority in cases from Texas and Georgia said that the decision to end a pregnancy during the first three months belongs to the woman and her doctor, not the government. According to popular lore, the Roe v. Wade ruling in 1973 was the point at which morally outraged conservative Christians finally entered the political fray. Ann Nelson. But in terms of the Protestants, 
and even the conservative sects like the Southern Baptists, there wasn't a huge diversion from mainstream public opinion, which was that abortion should be available under certain circumstances. As of the 1970s, the Southern Baptist Convention was far more liberal in its approach to abortion policy than it is now. Southern Baptists are the country's largest evangelical sect. At the time of the Roe ruling, their official newspaper said that, quote, religious liberty, human equality, and justice are advanced by the Supreme Court abortion decision. A lot of other evangelicals just didn't have much to say on abortion before or after Roe. They saw it as a Catholic issue. But in the early 1970s, one issue was getting a response from some evangelical leaders. When the schools were integrated over the objections of certain communities... Let us go to our neighborhoods where our kids are safe. They opened what they called Christian schools, also known as segregation academies, and offered the so-called religious education as an opportunity for white students to go to school without any black students. Citing freedom of religion, some religious groups created nonprofit, tax-exempt organizations to run these segregation academies. Since 1970, the IRS had been threatening and occasionally cracking down on several of these schools. And among the schools the IRS was battling with was Stuart Epperson and Edward Atzinger's alma mater, Bob Jones University. The greatest peril that faces America today is a religious peril. The line of demarcations being rubbed out between those men that would exalt God and men that would trim him down. Bob Jones was somebody who had a whole theology of segregation where he said the Bible said that races should not mix. It's against God's law. And eventually the federal government said, well, if you do not follow our integration requirements, you will lose your tax-exempt status. In 1976, that's exactly what happened. Bob Jones University became the latest victory in the federal government's integration campaign. And some leaders in the evangelical community were not happy. Weirich saw this as a winning campaign, but he was politically savvy enough to know that a rallying cry in opposition to integration wasn't a good look. So he hitched the anger over the school fight to another, more palatable cause. Abortion. Once abortion became legal and available, the numbers rose precipitously. People looked at the number of abortions, and a lot of people found it concerning. Catholics, many of whom were long opposed to abortion, spent the eve of the 1978 midterm elections leafleting church parking lots in three states, Iowa, New Hampshire, and my home of Minnesota, trying to get voters out for anti-abortion Senate candidates there. And it worked. From the NBC News Election Center in New York, Decision 78. In a low turnout election, those candidates won. In Minnesota, an upset there. Our projections show Republican David Durenberg. So Weirich took a cue from the Catholics and tried the cause again with evangelicals. He and a few of his fellow conservative activists teamed up with an evangelical pastor, Francis Schaefer, who was against abortion. Schaefer and his son made a series of films and showed them in churches and theaters across the country starting in 1979. 
We have killing quotas for whales and porpoises, but it is always open season on unborn babies. While we can appreciate this protection of our environment, do you wonder why I ask, whatever happened to the human race and to our sense of values? Schaefer's son recalled that by the end of the film tour, they were calling for an anti-abortion takeover of the Republican Party. But though the abortion issue was getting more support among evangelicals, it still wasn't crystallizing as the issue. In August of 1980, presidential hopeful Ronald Reagan gave a campaign speech to 10,000 evangelicals at the legendary Reunion Arena in Dallas. Chairman, often considered the first large the gathering of the new religious right. Now, I know this is a nonpartisan gathering, and so I know that you can't endorse me but I want you to know that I endorse you and what you are doing. The candidate didn't mention abortion at all, but he did mention the IRS's censure of independent schools. The year of the elections, 1980, you had a substantial vote in the South for Ronald Reagan against the Democrat who was an actual evangelical Christian, Jimmy Carter. In this burgeoning fusion of politics and religion, Policies trumped faith. Reagan was given a pass. A sports announcer, a film actor, governor of California, on this election night, we have projected Ronald Reagan the winner. Paul Weyrich's work had come to fruition, and he wanted to be sure there was no going back. So in 1981, he helped found the Council for National Policy. The Council for National Policy was founded as a very secretive organization that networked big donors, political strategists, and media operators. The New York Times has described the CNP as, quote, a little-known club of a few hundred of the most powerful conservatives in the country. In 2016, the Southern Poverty Law Center called it a key venue where mainstream conservatives and extremists mix. According to leaked rosters, recent membership in the CNP and its lobbying arm has included the likes of Ginny Thomas, Mike Pence, and Cleta Mitchell, a lawyer who worked with Trump to try to overturn the 2020 election results. And Salem co-founders Stuart Epperson, and Edward Atzinger. When Paul Weyrich helped form the Council for National Policy, he knew that strategizing among elite leaders wouldn't be enough. They would need megaphones. And he knew how compelling radio could be. Before he was a political strategist, Weyrich had been an on-air host and program director at a Kenosha, Wisconsin radio station and news director at a Denver station. Radio was to be a crucial channel for the new religious right and a way to help the CNP reach a very specific constituency. You could go after older, white, Protestant voters, and if you engage them through fundamentalist radio broadcasting combined with their churches and you mobilize them around certain issues, then you could turn them into highly motivated, high-propensity voters who could really make a difference in strategic elections. Strategic is the key word here, not widespread get-out-the-vote efforts. Now, many of our Christians have what I call the goo-goo syndrome. Good government, 
They want everybody to vote. Weirich explained his strategy in a speech he gave to evangelical leaders in 1980. I don't want everybody to vote. Elections are not won by a majority of people. They never have been from the beginning of our country, and they are not now. As a matter of fact, our leverage in the elections quite candidly goes up as the voting populace goes down. This was the goal of the Council for National Policy, to reach the right people. And around this time, a certain fledgling Christian radio network was doing just that. When we left the Salem story, Epperson and Atzinger had developed a solid business model, unencumbered by audience preferences or the whims of advertisers. In the 1980s, their Christian radio stations were multiplying. And as more and more evangelicals became immersed in politics, Salem's co-founders were no exception. Stuart Epperson ran for Congress twice in the mid-1980s. Meanwhile, the on-air content was getting more political, too. Their programs, though socially conservative from the start, had been Christian first, politics second. But in 1987, there was a change on the national radio stage that let the political stuff run wild. The Fairness Doctrine required that you give airtime to the opposing views. Reporter Adam Peori. Which, of course, limited... Salem's ability to talk about abortion and homosexuality and many of the hot-button issues that they care about. The decades-old fairness doctrine had required stations to have a degree of ideological balance in their coverage and to present multiple sides of controversial topics. But the fairness doctrine was declared dead by Reagan's FCC. And once that was lifted, they were able to opine on those positions all the time. For an increasingly politicized Salem... The end of the Fairness Doctrine was a godsend. Terry Fahey, who was the manager for KKLA, the big L.A. station, was telling me he recognized the power that they had after the Fairness Doctrine was repealed when Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ hit the theaters in 1988. Father, I'm sorry for being bad. Many evangelicals were upset with how the film portrayed Jesus. They felt he wasn't Christ-like enough. Father, stay with me. Don't leave me. KKLA spearheaded a demonstration at MCA Universal Studios. Protesters mobbed the entrance, waving signs. Anybody who mocks the crucifixion will burn in hell. They blocked Route 101. Tens of thousands of people participated in protests at theaters and video stores nationwide. And that was when they realized that the radio station did have the ability to mobilize. In the 1990s, Salem announced a major change to their mission. A station that covers the current news in depth and then gives you a chance to talk about it at all times of the day, 24 hours a day. In 1995, they officially expanded from pulpit to politics. So let me introduce you to that station, the all-new AM 1280 WWTC, or as we around here are going to call it, the Patriot. More power than a Tomahawk cruise we saw. AM 1280, The Patriot. Salem started building conservative talk stations in cities where they already had Christian teach and talk stations. They'd save costs by putting everyone in the same office. And then they'd promote their new conservative talk station on their religious station. It was a transformative step for the ever more ideological company. And it made good business sense, too. When they surveyed their listenership and asked their listeners 
who were listening to sermons where they were turning the dial after they found them turning the dial to talk radio and people like Rush Limbaugh. Salem's answers to Rush Limbaugh were hosts like Oliver North of Iran-Contra infamy and Alan Keyes, a member of Reagan's cabinet. And some names you still hear on Salem stations or could until recently. Michael Medved, Hugh Hewitt, Dennis Prager, Michael Savage. Don't give me that liberal double talk. I asked you a... Alan Keyes was an early black conservative activist, and Prager and Medved are Jewish. These new hosts weren't necessarily spouting theology, but they all communicated what the founders saw as the Judeo-Christian stance on political issues like abortion, gay marriage, and eventually the war on terrorism. These are all hosts who are sort of unified in their belief that the secularism that has bled into mainstream America, that we've kind of lost something, that we've lost our moral compass, as Stuart Epperson put it. On their religious stations and their new secular stations, Salem's talk show hosts built an audience that would support the kind of work that Epperson and Atzinger and the Council for National Policy were doing behind the scenes. And Salem kept buying up frequencies. At a certain point, they began bumping up against FCC laws, limiting the number of stations any one company could own nationwide in each market. Since the 1940s, the FCC had laws to ensure that no one company could grow too large. But then, in February of 1996... Today, with the stroke of a pen, our laws will catch up with our future. President Clinton signed the Telecommunications Act. I thank the vast array of interest groups who had sometimes conflicting concerns about this bill who were able to work together. And among the many things it did was eliminate the cap on the number of stations a single radio chain could own nationwide. Salem gave money to lobby for the bill. And between 1994 and 2005, Salem grew from 18 stations to 103. All the while, the company's founders were rising in the Council for National Policy. By the early 2010s, both Stuart Epperson and Edward Atzinger were in leadership positions. In 2014, Epperson was president of the CNP, overseeing members like Kellyanne Conway and Steve Bannon. A new recruit, according to the most recently leaked roster, is Salem host, election denier, and right-wing conspiracy theorist, Charlie Kirk. Four decades ago, Paul Weyrich used radio to help Republicans reach a new religious audience and change the destiny of their party. Today, the right-wing talk radio ethos is inextricable from the party's DNA, thanks, in part, to Salem Media. Speaking of shameful stuff... Next week, we take a detour from Salem's story to look at the landscape of talk radio writ large and shine a light on the bigger history of the ascendancy of the right on the air. Because as of today, 17 of the nation's top 20 most listened to talk radio hosts are conservative. Only one is progressive. How did the public's airwaves come to be so politically lopsided? We had a set of guidelines about how to serve local communities. It was an entire regime that enforced local service. You get rid of all that, and the result is Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> 
This week's show was written and reported by Katie Thornton, with production help from Max Balton and fact-checking by Tom Colligan and Sona Avakian. Music and sound design is by Jared Paul. Jennifer Munson is our technical director. The show is edited by OTM executive producer Katja Rogers. This series is a production of On the Media and WNYC Studios with the Fund for Investigative Journalism. I'm Brooke Gladstone. <laughs>